0: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.
1: The old world is dying. The new world struggles to be born. Now is the time of monsters. With those words loosely paraphrased from Gramsci, I welcome you to the Time of Monsters podcast. Uh, sponsored by The Nation magazine. This podcast is available wherever you listen to your podcast uh, on a multitude of platforms. Um, So earlier uh, this year, uh, we spoke with Jeremy Edelman, um, who is a professor of history at Princeton University and director of the Global History Lab uh, at Princeton, um, about the uh, possibility of a pink wave um, in uh, Latin America. And um, there's been some uh, good news, uh, largely good news uh, in recent weeks, uh, especially with the um, uh, victory over Bolsonaro in Brazil. Um, but I mean, it's a very complicated phenomenon that's going on uh, there uh, with both victories and losses happening at the same time. So I, I thought it would be good to survey the region uh, again. So um, I'm very happy to have uh, uh, Jeremy here as well as um, um, longtime uh uh, friend of the podcast, Doug Bell, uh, uh, who is on our previous podcast as well, and Doug will be joining in. So, Jeremy, let's start start with you. Um, uh, do you want to quickly sum up like um, what happened in Brazil, um, both uh, uh, this sort of victory, but maybe also this um, persistent strength of uh, the Bolsonaro's movement, even as he lost.
2: Right. Uh, so uh, the short version of the story, just to, to bring us up up to date, follow up on, on the last uh, podcast that we had. Um, in the interim, uh, there were elections in Brazil, uh, as you noted, uh, which yielded uh, mixed results. Um, there were two rounds in the first round. Uh, Bolsonaro, uh, in some senses, overperformed or his party, his movement uh, overperformed and did very well in the congressional elections. Um, That set off a a second round because um, neither of the candidates won an outright uh, over 50% uh, majority. So there was a second round for the presidential elections. So they did very well in the congressional elections um, uh, uh, for the legislature, but then had to decide the executive uh, branch elections Uh, that Lula won by... um, A slimmer margin than many people had thought would happen, Um, roughly a two percentage point uh, difference between the two of them, Uh, and the country uh, remains uh, badly uh, divided. Um, So Bolsonaro um, is um, very uh, healthily represented in in, uh, the Brazilian uh, legislature. and, and Alula takes, uh, takes uh, the presidency. And so we have a version of divided government in Brazil. Um, that's, that's kind of the update. And the question that we're all debating is, is whether this is a pink tide 2.0, when we discussed the pink tide 1.0 in the last uh, conversation, or whether this is a, a Latin American variation of the kind of polarization that we are seeing elsewhere. Which narrative is, is is the one that explains what's been happening in Latin America, uh, and and that's the state of of the debate.
1: Sure. Do you want to talk about? I mean, I I think for uh, myself, and I think for a lot of people, the surprise was um, the strength of Bolsonaro. I think we had yeah. maybe expected Lula to uh, have performed a little bit better. Uh, it, I mean, it is very impressive that he was able to defeat us, you know, incumbent a sitting president yeah. uh, but um uh the I mean it seems like there's a real kind of like social movement um on the side of bolsonaro as well as on the side of Lula and it's a sort of you know social movement that encompasses sort of you know evangelical Protestantism and yeah. the sort of uh parts of the middle class um uh, I mean th- that seems like it's gonna be a big problem that you know like um, yeah. I think people in America will be familiar with you know this issue of yeah. you know is there Trumpism after Trump is there right. a way in which the Republican party is the problem? Not just Trump and that it's going to represent these social forces. So, so what well, I mean, well, what's your thinking on that? Like, like, are we seeing, like, you know, is it going to be a future where you know the Bolsonaro's um ism isn't doesn't always win, but it's going to be a, a force in Brazilian life
2: I mean, just to start with a couple of downer points that that's that's worth bearing in mind. Um, one is that there is residual anger at Lula and the Pete, um. Uh, uh, that we have to think about and and that actually early signs are now that Lula has heard the message i mean this is the PT has taken this uh, seriously this is this was not uh, a good election for them they they uh, sort of thought that they would romp and and they did not um it's almost the opposite of what happened to the democrats in the recent midterms uh and uh so a, a couple of points on that one is um there's continuing anger at uh, the the kind of corruption that uh, the thePTte had represented. I think it was overblown um, and um, and and hyped up in in the conservative media in particular. Um, but there's a lot of anger at, at corruption. and I think I mean, stories are going to come out about the level of corruption under bolsonaro which will temper it on the bolsonarista side. but bolsonaro still effectively ran, as a political outsider against the corrupt establishment. And Pete still represented, Peté has work to do. We can talk more about that. Um, the other is, is that the coalition that that Bolsonaro represented, as you said, gee, I mean it's a it's a powerful one. Um, we have to take conservatism seriously. Um and um particularly the uh, racial dimension and the religious dimension. Um, that that the map, the political map of Brazil, is very regionalized/slash racialized in in striking ways, and the power of Pentecostalism, which has been growing since the 1970s, clearly manifested itself. Uh, so in a way, Lula is transitioning the pete away from its base in the social movement that had buoyed it to power, which had largely been the trade union movement emerging out of the late 70s and early 80s and the resistance to the dictatorship uh, into a different kind of coalition. And that's what the PT is going through, some growing pains, even as as it has to exercise power. Um, And we can, again, we can talk about that in more detail, but that's what Lula has to confront. The early signs in that he's he's ruling as, as the representative of a coalition, I think that's gonna be one of our late motifs in this conversation is that the left in Latin America is going to, it does represent and is going to have to represent a coalition of forces and movements and not just one pure ideology anymore. And particularly in the budget negotiations, Brazilian foreign policy, we are seeing early signs that Lula is governing in that
1: spirit. Uh, Doug, it seemed like you wanted to interject.
0: You know, I just I, I just want to ask a, a couple of questions. Um, so, somewhat on the other side of the issue, particularly as regards Bolsonaro's kind of continuing uh, uh, strength as a political force in in Brazil, which I think that's a legitimate point. But yeah. I, I would say that one of the things that Bolsonaro tried to do in the course of the campaign, and even in the, in the in the second part of the campaign, the, the yeah. You know, he was uh, spending money like a drunken sailor. I mean, he was he was out there bribing the Brazilian people with their own money and uh, spent in the billions of dollars. Yeah. Uh, and in 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 some respect, you got the feeling that yes, he was able to hold to to you know, as I say, bribe a certain number of voters to 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 to, 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 to go along with him. But the other side of it is is that. Uh, you know mm-hmm. relative to near run elections he did win by 2 percentage points and yep. brazil gets the real thing they get a guy who's actually going to spend money on an ongoing basis on social progress yep. he's already said he's he's not going to roll back any of the money that that bolsonaro has already spent in fact yep. he's arguing that they should spend more right so now th- that having been said uh, i and i'd like to hear your thoughts on this that that this new co that you're talking about, I suspect, turns a little bit on issues of environmentalism and mm-hmm. uh, uh, addressing the concerns of millennials who are g- concerned uh, about mm-hmm. issues regarding global warming, so forth, and uh, 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 Lula gave, I thought, quite a good speech at, at COP27 yeah, on this very subject. Yeah, got a standing subject.
2: ovation, and yeah, the, the, right, Amazon, the people are chanting, yeah, and,
0: right, and all right. that kind of stuff, right? And there, so there's that aspect of it, and yeah. then just on the and again, on a more, op, I would suggest, possibly optimistic note, that the convergence of Lula's uh, uh, agenda in this regard, mm-hmm. in the environmental regard, dovetailing so consistently with what petro's up to right uh the newly elected president of colombia yeah. uh and his environmental uh yeah. uh agenda and whether i guess yeah. this is my question does that bode well for a new kind of coalition yeah. in brazil but also in the rest of latin america right I, I, yeah i mean i agree with you I, there are reasons to be
2: optimistic i i mean i'm i'm to be quite honest and this is gonna my i know some of my latin american friends are going to think Are you? What did you drink this morning? <laughs> I, I'm more optimistic about Latin America, even though the economic situation is frankly fucked for them than I am for the United States uh, in, in, in this regard. And, and I think some of it is, is is what you're talking about uh, uh, Doug, that, that, that in a sense, Bolsonaro has been uh, in some ways more repudiated um he, he did not have the party app, party apparatus in the same way that there's a Republican party apparatus behind, attached to Trumpism. Um, but I think what we're learning, and there is a green agenda that can really move forward in Latin America in a way that's, that, that's, that's harder to see the pathway for, for, for the United States. On the other hand, I, I don't think we should exaggerate the appeal of the green for Brazil that the Amazon as a region was itself extremely polarized internally between um, let's say the deforesters who are a substantial number. Um, this is a development objective for for Brazil. I mean, this is the thing we have to understand. This is what what Bula Lula confronts that the global north better start listening to that that. Uh, this is an option for a development against a certain kind of development model inside Brazil and in other places in Latin America where there are rainforests that have a lot of popular support and bolsonaro tapped into it. Uh, so Lula's got to manage this one um, very carefully. We should not assume that the moral virtues of green um are 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 always going to carry the the day uh politically. I mean, I think the the lesson is, this is not the pink tide 2.0. I mean, there are many pink f- roads uh, that are forking now. I mean, there's the archaic uh, national popular Maduro and 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 and, and um, the Sandinista regime in in, in Nicaragua maybe carrying the flag for that archaic left. There is an identitarian left, and we saw this very strongly in in, in Brazil. And then there's a kind of remade social democratic red-green left that that we see as well. And those are three horses that Boric and uh, Petro and Lula and others are trying to ride those horses at the same time. This is what I mean by the coalition of the left with the center is very unstable. And the left, and this is going back to Bolsonaro's achievement, is no longer the outsider movement, right? That the left has governed in Latin America, and Bolsonaro runs as the outsider, ag- running against corruption, even though he's like incredibly corrupt. But he managed to take that uh, to, to 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 grab uh, the megaphone there,
0: and uh, the yeah, left actually, does not have that a left
2: la- post neoliberal economic model, and that's a challenge.
1: Yeah, I want to uh, hit on that point you made about. Uh... Um, Bolsonaro casting himself as the outsider, uh, because I I think that gets at something about anti-system politics that people don't understand, which is that if you run as the outsider, you can actually be corrupt because people don't care. Like you're saying the system is corrupt and I'm a corrupt (laughs) guy, so I know how it works and I'll be corrupt on your behalf. Uh, Whereas if you're running as the systems builder, you want right. to, you know, build, uh, uh, have the system work, have democracy work, then any little bit of corruption, like That's really, exactly rigged. right. Um, right. I, I think listeners might understand this in terms of you know Trump versus yep. Clinton. I mean, Trump was hugely corrupt, but right. it didn't matter because whereas uh, followers, because his whole message was the right. system is rigged, and I'm one of the guys who rigged it, and right. I know how it's done. And right. whereas Clinton had to be yep. squeaky clean, and unfortunately. Right. She was not right. and, uh, and the rest and is a, history. And uh, I would not consider her, I mean,
2: there's an interesting role reversal. Of course, I would not consider Hillary sort of someone of the left, but the paradox is of course that the Latin American left um, and one might say versions of Biden, the Biden coalition are the left in power, right? That, that And they are, they have become the establishment and therefore institutionalists in a way, as you're saying, Jeet, that the right has managed runs itself as anti-institutional outsiders even though but, they're deeply corrupt
1: yeah yeah no, no i mean i mean it's unfortunate that the if you're if your whole message is like to be building systems and to make democracy work right. you're kind of very vulnerable to that and it's a it's a paradox that i think uh we see often uh throughout the world um right. it's very hard to get around um but um uh we had touched on like some of these other countries and, and maybe it's worth going through them you know in chile yeah. uh you mentioned uh, boric there's a kind of you know um uh, issue of um uh, there's a constitutional um um making process that was tried and you know do you want to talk about where things stand now and if there's uh the reversal that happened and whether there's any chance of um fixing it
2: right i so and and yes i i think um i i remain op- optimistic for him and, and for constitutional change the the, the pathway that they chose uh, backfired badly um but just to to put this in context uh so gabriel Boric um wins uh, the elections uh, this is uh Represents as as kind of new left generation coming to power in in, in Chile, um, and yet carries with him uh, a post transition. By what I by which I mean that the old left center coalitions had governed in socialist Christian Democrat coalitions after the transition to democracy. After Pinochet um, uh, 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 was was forced to to step away. Uh, This is the first uh, left-wing government in power that is not self-identified as a transition government, trying to transition back to democracy. This is a mature, established, institutionalized democratic uh, system. Yes, with kernels of authoritarianism in it, as we're discovering also in the United States, but he carries certain traits with him. He does not have a legislative uh, majority um, and uh, he made uh, a commitment to have a constitutional change in the form of, of, of a large assembly of delegates that had been popularly chosen. I have my doubts about whether that's the most effective way to get you know, even radical forms of constitutional change through. And he got spanked when it went to a referendum. I mean, badly. Um, that allows him now and I think this is what his advisors are saying, is to go back to a different model. They need constitutional change. There are too many of the authoritarian kernels left over from from the days of of, of Pinochet's constitution. Everybody agrees to that. Everybody agrees that the format has to change. And so instead it'll go through a parliamentary route, um with elected representatives who are rep- who are represented in different forms of parliament and that may involve different tiers canadians will be very familiar with the federalist ways in which premiers and so on did it that's the road that they are going to pursue and in the meantime boorich is going to pursue he's got d- legislation before congress on tax reform and on pensions and 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 a green agenda and on that there's broadly speaking some support, and he may get those things through. So I'm I'm actually relatively optimistic there.
0: Okay, uh, Doug. Sorry, I just I just wanted to just touch on that that issue about the pension reform, because uh, the, the, first of all, the, the numbers are of how badly he was spanked, how badly Borch was spanked, in, in 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 trying to push through this uh, constitutional reform are astonishing. I mean, seventy-eight percent of people agreed in a referendum that they needed a new constitution, and sixty-two percent of the people voted against that constitution when it was put put before them. No, which is exactly right. Yeah, which is crazy, right? And then, and yet still, with rough and ready polling, it's still around seventy percent in favor of uh, some kind of new, new constitutional uh, arrangement uh, in the longer term, and God knows how long that's going to take. But what, just issue of pensions i i just happened to see this today that that he uh introduced um a a, a very mild kind of hybrid uh, uh public private uh pension system in, yeah. in as against the long standing completely private pension system god knows how many you know fund managers made out in in chile over the last 40 years well and how Um, unevenly apportioned
2: it is i mean that's the that's the main chile is one of the most unequal societies on the planet you know and and everybody agrees that this is a problem even the moderate right right that something has to be done about this but
0: at at any rate it just just to echo that point yeah so he introduces this stuff in parliament and as a consequence of the, of the of the of the just getting slaughtered on this this uh, this constitutional reform, his numbers drop down. He's got twenty five percent approval rating. Uh, as a consequence of that, he introduces the th- this mild hybrid version of pension yeah. reform, and his his numbers jump ten percent overnight. Right. That's.
1: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.
0: How engaged the electorate is with, it must be said, uh, core uh, economic issues. Right. So I guess my question in all this is how much of this... Uh, reform versus uh, sort of revolution. If, if if reform is what he's stuck with, and he was looking for a more revolutionary change, yeah. how much of 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 that reform is reform? As, as which you know, it was famously said that Chile is going to be the graveyard of neoliberalism, which m- may have been overstated, and yet mm-hmm. facts on the ground seem to suggest that that's still a viable option. Right. Well, I mean, the,
2: the two I, what, you're, what you're pointing to, Doug, is is the tremendous consensus a, a, around the need for reform in, in in Chile and in other places. The same goes for for Colombia as well, and Brazil as well. Though it's very so polarized in Brazil, but but um, is the appetite for reform? What 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 people objected to was was the method, was the plebiscitary, this hybrid system of popular representation in these assemblies followed by the plebiscite. They want a different path to reform. So ironically, the getting spanked in the plebiscite will allow him to go the parliamentary road that the left has to learn to, to, to champion and, and negotiate. And that's going to be uh, the challenge. So, and he's got wind in his sails. I mean, that the lesson was learned that this plebiscite model, the, the sort of almost bonapartist model that he had for change, won't work and he's going to have to go to back to parliament. And I think the lessons for the left generally are there. Lula has a challenge on his hands because it's much more, his opposition is more intransigent um, and it's much harder to, to to negotiate with. But that's not true for uh, Boric, in part because Christian Democrats, there are this strong centrist presence inside that or a tradition of that inside the parliamentary arena in Chile. So he'll be able to get some things through.
1: Okay, great. Um, And you had sort of like mentioned sort of Colombia, which, um, you know, is the great kind of innovation in this uh, uh, version of the uh, pink tide, Um, you know, a country that has not had any sort of... um, left wing uh government or you know like i mean basically ever like i think we can say you know unless you go back like i guess to the 40s or uh, arguably uh but although uh, even then it was cut off anyway we can get into the yeah, yeah. yeah this is something totally unprecedented in the sort of yeah. you know modern history of colombia that's right and uh what uh so so how are things standing there like what, what, uh how is the government is the government there you know finding its sea legs is it you know like are they uh meeting uh, some of the resistance that we've seen in Brazil well he, he they are again so uh, Gustavo Petro has the
2: same challenges and again this is a late motif here same challenges as the other guys do um which is um that they do not have majorities in the legislatures. That requires learning how to negotiate and how to work the system to get legislation through and to create or widen the coalitions that got them to power in the executive branch uh, in in the legislature. That means a certain mutation for the pacto histórico, which is his which is his movement, um is going to have to, widen it, it. It can get him the presidency, but it can't get major reform, which is what the commitment is to. Uh, and de facto, that's what what he's done with José Antonio Campo as his finance minister, defense, foreign ministry. He's named centrist progressives uh, in major cabinet posts. He's moving forward in the first week of November. He presented to Congress um, legislation, tax legislation, to, to close loopholes for the ultra rich, uh, tax in mining and oil companies, and so on. A, a, as in, in Doug Bell's formulation, not very radical legislation, uh, <laughs> but moving in the direction that may well be able to pull together a congressional level coalition to see some of the tax reform come through after so many years of, of conservative hegemony. Um, he, he, he uh, we can go into the to the weeds if you want on 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 his his congressional support um but but it suggests that that he um that that again there is there is some scope for reform that I think many of us felt at the outright that there would be more obstacles, and um it would be harder to see through where he's he's actually kind of broken some interesting ground we should spend some time talking about is it. the relations with Venezuela and a discussion around how the region might confront the the let's say the problem and the crisis the chronic crisis in Venezuela that has just been getting so much worse in the last four years. Um, and that he really, uh, you know this summer and there were a set of face-to-face meetings with Maduro that have uh, restored diplomatic relations and so on. So we're beginning to see the possibility of, of a of, of a negotiated solution to the Venezuelan crisis. So, on Petro, like Boric, like Lula, um, it's a question about learning how to negotiate, widening your coalition from your base, working through the legislature, not taking plebiscitarian routes to to, to getting reform uh, through. Um, so, helped by the fact it's worth remembering, he ran against a notoriously inept um, uh, conservative politician. And so again. They can't assume, just as Lula, th- this was a very humbling election for, for the PT. I mean, they lost to a a a, 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 a a a now it's true, you know, Bolsonaro was the incumbent, but has left Brazil in shattered. You know, really a disastrous presidency. On COVID alone, um, I mean, really a calamity that you could not do better than the 2% difference in Brazil. Pedro had a little bit the same element. He, he, he was running against a very weak candidate. The lesson being from the point of views of those who won, the progressives who won, uh, that they cannot assume that their coalitions are gonna hold and get them through the next round. So they're going to have to widen their circle.
1: Yeah, no, no, I mean, it's interesting, like the sort of thematic links that you've been able to make. Uh, um... Uh, for the for the region as a whole um i think i think one other issue that doug had sort of mentioned and but i want to return to it so because it doesn't get lost in the conversation was the sort of your environmental uh issue and um the kind of um uh, uh vision that uh uh lula and petro have been kind of putting forward and like you know like well, what is it and like how realistic is it and you know like uh what path forward does it offer
2: well i mean i do think that 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 uh, there is uh, more popular support for, let's say, a green agenda in Latin America, especially from young voters, than there ever has been before. But there is a a contradiction, right? Which is that it's an economy that has become the the regional economy. I would include Mexico and uh, other parts of Latin America as well. It's not just the Andes or the Amazon. It's more extractive than it's ever been. So how do you reconcile the 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 dependency on the extractive economy? Thirty percent of Latin American exports of uh, and, and it's tied to China, which we can smuggle into the discussion here. Thirty of, uh, percent of of Latin America's exports are uh, are are extractive resources destined for the Chinese market. That has been. Uh, the engine of what little growth has happened in the region. How do you reconcile that with green, with protecting the forest, with controlling mining, uh, protecting fisheries, that's a big one, um, and on and on. That is a problem. And it's not just a problem about the economy, it's also a social problem. As I said, in the Amazon, there's an enormous amount of popular support for deforestation. You know, by small loggers, by farmers, farmers. squatters, Um, this is a problem for the region as a whole, why we need a post-neoliberal economic model to address this. And that's what the green agenda is going to have to confront, Um, you know? And so while there is a lot of support for, uh, you know, for Latin America, reducing its carbon dependency, restoring the importance of the sink of the Amazon, Uh, There needs
1: to be a new model. Yeah. Okay. No. So um, I I think that's very good. You'd mentioned China in there, and maybe that brings up you know where the region fits into sort of larger global politics. Uh, I I've noticed that like in the American um, sort of foreign policy press, there's a lot of anxiety about the fact that China's made so many inroads uh, in Latin America. I think there's a big piece in uh, foreign policy just talking about um, the strength of Chinese sort of uh, diplomacy. Uh, dollar diplomacy and uh in those regions and how um, they're able to uh leverage uh, investments to you know make foreign policy investments and um th- and that seems to come at a time where like it seems like the United States its presence uh in the region is less than it's ever been so so how, what, what do we think about like how it's um how the region fits into you know the sort of um the the great game of global hegemony
2: Right. I mean, it's, um, you know, first on the China side, um, I think there's a lot of hyperventilating around the importance of of China. And and I think some of it for good reason, but it's more limited than we realize and much more strategic. Um, You know, it's true that if you take Mexico out of the picture, because the Mexican economy is so integrated with the North American economy, Chinese trade in 2021, um, was seventy three billion dollars more than uh, U.S. trade uh, with the region? That the, the China is the is the leading trade partner for nine Latin American countries. I mean, it's economically very important. It's displaced the United States for all intents and purposes. But the influence does not go much further than that. China is is an important investor in some very specific kinds of industries, like um, electricity generation and a few other areas but beyond that uh there's a little bit of cultural diplomacy uh some iconic uh uh uh, uh re- re- examples of it like the building of the new national library and archives in the center of the, the shamble that is san salvador uh, but other than that the influence is pretty it is it, is pretty mild that does not mean that the united states is still weighs heavily in fact it, it doesn't I, you started you sort of the old world is dying the new world is yet to be born that is true for latin america in the geostrategic sense we don't know whether the chinese trade cycle is is closing um the growth of exports diminished over the last 3 years whether that was driven by china's turn inward or covid it's very hard to say um the the degree to which the latin american exports to china are so heavily concentrated in, in extractive and agricultural products means that it doesn't have the multiplier effects in the rest of the economy. In the case of the United States, I mean, it's 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 worried about Chinese penetration, uh, and, and that can be something that Latin America uses if it wanted to leverage something from the United States. What would that be? I have no idea. So I, it's, in a way, we can exaggerate the influence of China, but we can also exaggerate what it would mean to have the United States engage with Latin America. With a couple of exceptions, I think that are important to pay attention to. One is the importance of border politics for the United States. And that's very, that's a Mesoamerican challenge. And then the other one is Venezuela. If I were Joe Biden and looking for a win in foreign policy right now, I would say um, beginning to uh, tackle not the border. I mean, the border, he's gonna have to do something about it, Uh, but it's it's, it's a lose-lose as far as I can tell but Venezuela is the opposite. And, and he now has people he can talk with and the relations with the Lula people, with the Petro people are actually, uh, uh, I don't know but good, certainly cordial, much better than they were under Trump, right? And so there's the prospect for negotiating a Central Americanoid 1980s regional solution to, the problem for venezuela that has to get addressed cuz it is a humanitarian crisis of enormous proportions and and if and if biden wants to win that's one that's waiting for him in my view
1: yeah and i think there are some signs that that, that could happen and i want to maybe throw in some domestic american politics which is i there's a kind of silver lining in florida becoming such a red state that it yeah. looks like it might be uh out of um uh, contest for the democrats right uh, so why bother pandering to the reaccionarios the the the, the Dade yeah. county you know so exactly, exactly yeah, yeah right, if you right. if the republicans are going to win Dade county then yes yeah. why not um uh the, the, the democrats have every uh there's no electoral loss for them um on venezuela and right. you know like on Cuba where Biden has not yet fully returned to what even um, Barack Obama you know right. uh went for so so i, I think think i think there's a real opening and possibility there um now uh, Doug, uh did you want to uh, uh it looks like you want to interact- i just want
0: to just jump in with one one quick point which was which was just to echo what what uh what um uh, jeremy was saying uh, petro uh, gustavo petro uh, the president of colombia seems to have a real uh uh you know, a, a, a good ear for this kind of, yeah. uh, you know, managing American expectations and so forth, and knowing how to manage the very specific issues that pertain, that we were just discussing about in Florida. And when Blinken, the Secretary uh, uh, secretary of State, went to, to visit Petro right after his election, Petro made a point of saying to Blinken, uh, you seem to me to be the sort of person that could very easily be the, be a president of the United States. And apparently Blinken was just, you know, has no political aspirations, and sort of, you know, looked quite quite startled, um, but you know, clearly pleased and 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 <laughs> flattered. Uh, the the point being that that petrol has a a, a fantastic I, I think fantastic antenna for this stuff. And just one other point on that, his speech. Petro's speech to the General Assembly of the United Nations is one of the most extraordinary uh, sort of distillations of uh, a, a sort of left idea of Latin America as its own uh, uh, specific set of circumstances. One that is not entirely in. in, in with the United States, but could under a, a, a long period of reform, there could be a kind of reconciliation. And I, I just, I have to completely commend that. I don't know where you can find it on the internet. It's uh, You just put Gustavo Petro's uh, uh, speech to the UN uh, on YouTube, or and there's English transcriptions of it. But it's a really extraordinary speech where he braids the history of racial disparities, the war on drugs, Deforestation, global warming, anti-capitalism—all into a sort of really completely compelling twenty-minute package. Which, oddly enough, while it probably drove the Sanders and Trump, you know, to distraction, the people around them and they were probably taking notes. Who gives a shit? That's (laughs) exactly
2: right. I I, I just there's a kind of clarity now about where what used to be called intermestic politics. And by intermestic was meant the ways in which American domestic policies spill, uh, domestic politics spilled into its relations with Latin America has been clarified. I mean, this goes back to Cheat's point about what's happened in Florida and elsewhere. Um, So yes, I think there is a kind of historic opportunity for convergence over some specific kinds of issues and some specific kinds of interlocutors i i agree with you on petro his leadership is is he, i mean he's well worth watching um in a sense more interesting if 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 our listeners are going to going to follow people follow petro he he's he's a picture of a future of the left at very improbably coming out of the colombian context um that in a way lula um is not um and it's worth remembering again so back to Venezuela it's the hemisphere along with Haiti these are the two countries in just in, in terrible shape and millions of people are suffering um you know then in June he he reopened the border with Venezuela I mean, 7 million people have, have had to leave uh, Venezuela since 2015. Uh, the Americas has their homegrown migrant crisis. It's it's Arab Spring is like right here in the Western Hemisphere. Um, reopen the border, the, the, the Trump paradigm of isolating Venezuela, heavy sanctions, rhetorical support for an opposition that was completely splintered under Juan Guaido, Uh beginning to open a new space for, for for diplomatic relations, in part because the border was becoming itself a cesspool for crime and contraband. Closing the border was the worst thing you could, but of course, under pressure from Trump. That's what they wound up doing. And then finally restoring diplomatic relations and meeting face-to-face after six years of, 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 of basically no conversation. I, I think there's an opening for thinking about a new model of, a kind of human diplomacy, right? That we have not seen in a long time uh, in the region.
1: Okay, that that's a really great uh, optimistic note to end on. I want to thank Jeremy and Doug for being here. Um, uh, we we covered a lot of ground, uh, and you know I, I'm especially grateful. I think for Jeremy for giving a very nuanced picture, you know that acknowledges the sort of fault lines and problems, uh, but then is also you know fundamentally optimistic and and hopeful about you know what can be achieved. Uh, so, so thank you both. Thanks, G. Thank you, thanks, thank Doug. You.